Welcome to Building Insight, brought to you by the lawyers at Glayholt LLP. Building Insight is Canada's first podcast dedicated to construction law and dispute resolution. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, I'm Andrea Lee, a partner at Glayholt LLP. I'm Marcus Rotterdam. I'm the firm's director of research. The topic of today's podcast is construction trusts in the context of bankruptcy. We'll be looking at the Ontario Court of Appeals' recent decision in the Guarantee Company of Canada and Royal Bank of Canada. This is the latest in a series of decisions exploring the interplay between provincial lien legislation and federal insolvency legislation. The decision in GCNA and Royal Bank of Canada was a good one for subcontractors and suppliers trying to enforce Construction Act trust rights in the face of of an insolvency because now they have a very good chance of recovering trust funds, which are held for their benefit even after the contractor's bankruptcy. But that wasn't always the case. Section 8 of the Construction Act creates the so-called contractors and subcontractors trust. The Act provides that any amounts owing to or received by a contractor or subcontractor on an account of an improvement constitute a trust fund for the benefit of the subcontractors and other suppliers of services to the improvement. As trustee, the contractor or subcontractor cannot use any part of that trust until all subcontractors and suppliers below it are fully paid. So while that's always been clear in principle, it was significantly less clear how that trust was affected by a trustee's insolvency. More specifically, what happens when a trustee makes an assignment into bankruptcy? Does a trust survive the bankruptcy? Or is a trust money up for grabs to the entire pool of the trustee's other creditors? So by way of background, we're going to look at the way the courts decided this issue prior to GCNA and Royal Bank of Canada. Before the Court of Appeal decision, trust funds under the Construction Lien Act would generally not survive the bankruptcy, which left unpaid subcontractors and suppliers fighting to collect from whatever assets were available to the general pool of creditors. That was so for a number of reasons. First, the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act provides in Section 67 sub 1a that the property of a bankrupt divisible among his creditors shall not comprise property held by the bankrupt in trust for any other person. Now that initially sounds clear enough and would seem to apply to Section 8 trustees because they do, after all, hold funds in trust for those who supplied services and materials to them. However, as soon as bankruptcy occurs in a construction setting, there's two different pieces of legislation that come into play. The Construction Act on the one hand and the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act on the other. Now, the Construction Act is a provincial act, while the BIA is a federal act. Under what is known as the principle of federal paramountcy, where there's any inconsistency or any kind of conflict between a provincial law and a federal law, the federal law prevails. Next, it's important to understand that the Section 8 trust of the Construction Act is what is known as a deemed trust, and what that means is that it's a trust created by a statute designed to protect a certain class of creditor, in this case, subcontractors and suppliers to a construction project. Now, reading these first three steps together, a long line of cases has held that because bankruptcy is a matter under federal jurisdiction, Provincial statutory deemed trusts, such as the trust in Section 8 of the Construction Act, cannot operate to reorder the priorities in a bankruptcy. So in other words, the beneficiaries of the trust under Section 8 did not get access to those funds before the rest of the bankrupt's creditors. The leading case in Canada for the latter proposition was British Columbia versus Henry Sampson Bel Air Limited, a 1989 Supreme Court of Canada decision in which the court held that for any deemed statutory trust to fall under Section 67 sub 1a of the BIA, 
the three elements of a common law trust had to be present as well. Those, of course, are certainty of intention, certainty of subject matter, and certainty of object. Now, in Royal Bank of Canada versus Atlas Block Co. Ltd., a 2014 decision of the Ontario Superior Court of Justice, the court held that a supplier's trust claim under the Construction Lien Act did not survive Atlas's bankruptcy. And following the Supreme Court decision in Hanfrey, the court held that Section 67 sub 1A of the BIA did not extend to funds held by Atlas and Trust because those funds were commingled in one account with funds the Atlas got from other sources. Therefore, there was no certainty of subject matter. Consequently, there was no common law trust, and therefore, Section 67 of the BIA did not extend to those funds. In the words of the court, once commingling had occurred, that was the end of the matter. The court's analysis turned on the fact that the act did not set out specific obligations on the trustee to establish and maintain a separate account designated as a trust account. The court found that if the province had wanted to require that a party maintain funds in a separate account, it could have legislated that separation, but it didn't. Now, the authors of Striking the Balance, the expert review of Ontario's Construction Lien Act, took that last comment to heart and suggested amendments to the trust regime. Under new Section 8.1 of the Act, the Section 8 trustee must now do a number of things with any trust funds it receives. It must deposit the trust funds into a bank account in the trustee's name. It must then maintain written records respecting those trust funds, detailing the amounts that are received into and paid out of those funds, as well as any transfers made for the purposes of the trust. And finally, if the person is a trustee of more than one trust under Section 8, the trust funds may be deposited together into one single bank account as long as the trustee maintains separate records in respect of each trust. Those new elements of Section 8.1, which came into effect in July 2018, should provide all of the certainty required by the courts in Henfrey and Atlas Block. Now let's turn to the recent Ontario Court of Appeal decision in GCNA and Royal Bank of Canada. This case involved A1's bankruptcy before the new Section 8.1 came into effect. So in the context of the bankruptcy of A1 Asphalt Maintenance Company, it uh, was a contractor uh, responsible for a number of uh, road projects, multiple liens were registered against all of the A1 projects. At the time of A1's bankruptcy, it had four major ongoing projects, three with the city of Hamilton and one with the town of Halton Hills. All four contracts had outstanding accounts receivable for work performed by A1. The bankruptcy judge directed the receiver to establish a paving projects account and then a separate general post receivership account. The order provided that all receipts from the four paving projects were to be deposited into the paving projects account. Based on that order, the city and the town paid just under $700,000 to the receiver, who deposited those funds into the Paving Projects account. GCNA was the bonding company that had settled the lien claims and became segregated to the claims. GCNA argued that the funds paid to the receiver by the city and the town were Section 8 trust funds to be excluded from A1's property on the bankruptcy pursuant to Section 67 sub 1A of the BIA. Not surprisingly, RBC, a secured creditor pursuant to a general security agreement, took the position that the funds formed part of A1's estate and were available to all creditors. Justice Conway heard the motion in January of 2018 
and concluded that GCNA had failed to establish sufficient certainty of subject matter and that the funds were not held in trust within the meaning of Section 67 sub 1A of the BIA. And this was entirely within uh, the case law to date. For example, looking at GMAC Commercial Credit Corporation, a 2005 Ontario Court of Appeal decision. This decision also required segregations of uh, funds to maintain a common law trust. So even though the receiver's accounting could identify the funds in the paving project's account, in this case, the judge held that that was not enough to establish certainty of subject matter. Once again, the mere fact of the commingling of funds from various projects into a single account was found to have destroyed the certainty of subject matter. And according to Justice Conway, GCNA was only entitled to a pro rata share of the funds as one creditor amongst many. Now that pro rata share was not quite good enough for GCNA, so GCNA appealed. In allowing the appeal, the Court of Appeal made a number of significant findings. To begin with, the Court clarified that the Supreme Court in Hanfrey contemplated that the provincial statute could very well, in fact, supply the required element of certainty of intention for statutory trust, and that if that actually happened, the trust created by the Act did not give rise to an operational conflict with the BIA. Now, in the absence of such an operational conflict, the doctrine of paramountcy we discussed earlier didn't apply. The court next looked at the motion judge's finding that the requirement of certainty of subject matter was not met in this case. The Court of Appeal held that to satisfy the requirement for certainty of subject matter, all that was necessary was that it had to be possible to determine precisely what property the trust was meant to encompass. In this case, the evidence clearly established that the funds paid for each paving project were readily ascertainable and identifiable. The mere fact that they were commingled into the same paving projects account did not deprive the funds of certainty of subject matter. So only when commingling is accompanied by conversion and tracing becomes impossible is the required element of certainty of subject matter lost. Therefore, the Court of Appeal held that by operation of Section 67 sub 1a of the BIA, the funds did satisfy the requirements for a trusted law and were not property of A1 available for distribution to A1's creditors. The GCNA and RBC case is a significant decision and should give parties some certainty going forward. Now the requirements outlined in Section 8.1, requiring a trustee to maintain detailed written records respecting the trust funds, read in conjunction with the Court of Appeal decision in this case, should leave beneficiaries of the Section 8 trust in a good position to claim access to the trust funds in future. The law now seems reasonably clear that even in bankruptcy situations, Section 8 trust funds will be excluded from the property of the bankrupt and kept out of the reach of other general creditors. We hope you found this helpful and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And visit glayholt.com for more information. If you have any questions, email us at info at We look forward to having you join us again.